Well, we are starting this new series today. The title is Turning the World Upside Down. Um, the Acts of the Apostles, our top title today as he presented himself alive. I'm really, really excited about this new series. Uh, we've, as, as I mentioned, the title is Turning the World Upside Down. The reason for that is that in Acts 17, there were a group of people who were actually opponents of Christ, opponents of the gospel, who said that the apostles had done that very thing. They had turned the world upside down. You know, as we look at the scene in our world today, uh, don't you think you'd kind of like to do that again? Um, turn this world upside down? Maybe turn it right side up? Um, here's what I know about that, that our strategies, our human strategies, our human methods, uh, political um, actions, social actions will always prove to be less than adequate. And why is that? It's because it's only the Word of God and the message of the resurrected Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that provide the resources that we need today in all of the places where we live our lives and all the places where we function um, to be world changers. And uh, whether it's in your family, even in your marriage, uh, in your place of work, in your neighborhood, um, it's the Word of God, the message of the gospel power of the Spirit that will uh, be at work to accomplish those things. Well, my goal in this session is is really twofold. First, it's to provide you with just a simple introduction to the book. Um, Maybe very familiar to some of you, um, perhaps less familiar to others. Here's something I know about the Word of God. Every time you come back to it, Maybe you've studied the Acts of the Apostles before, and you go, well, I, know, I know everything that book's about. No, you don't. Um, and how do I know that? Because I've studied it a lot of times, too. And each time I come back to a passage of Scripture that I think I know, a book that I think I know, God suddenly just shows me things I've never seen before. Uh, so you might be very familiar with this book. You may be unfamiliar. Um, that's okay. Secondly, my my. I just, uh, in the second half of my time this morning, I'd just like to lead you in, into a brief study of the first five verses of the first chapter, which are kind of a preamble to the book itself. So uh, I learned in the first service I need to move faster than I moved then. So um, who's the author of the book? Well, the writer of the book is, of Acts is a man named Luke. He's also the author of the Gospel that bears his name, a fact that we're going to return to in just a few minutes. And tradition holds that Luke was a native of Antioch in Syria, just to the north of Israel. He was, uh, there there was an amazing missionary church in that city that that kept sending people out um, that, that were world changers, that were turning that part of the world upside down with the gospel. And and, uh, it was a multicultural, multi-ethnic church that had a great heart for the world. Luke was probably a part of that church. He was certainly a close friend and traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, He accompanied Paul on several of his missionary journeys, specifically into the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Asia, the island of Cyprus, back to Jerusalem, and along the way, uh, all kinds of cities, uh, well-known cities, lesser-known cities, small villages. Um, Luke was with Paul when they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta, had that adventure together. 
And, and we know from Paul's reference to Luke as the beloved physician, the beloved physician in Colossians 4, verse 14, that Luke was a doctor. And um, that fact is given greater weight by Luke's keen attention to detail. He was obviously a scientist. He was also obviously a person that paid attention to details, and it just shines through and brings this book to uh, vivid life. The recipient of the book is a man named Theophilus. Theophilus. Many have speculated down through the centuries that Theophilus was not an actual person, but rather that that, that name kind of represented a, a composite of, of a church, a particular church, or a particular group of believers in Jesus, or just uh, Christian believers generally. Um, and the reason for that speculation is the nature of his name, because Theophilus combines two Greek words, theos, which is God, and phileo, which is brotherly love, like in the word the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Theos and phileo, and it literally means, those things combined literally mean God lover or friend of God. Uh, have it your way, either one fits. Uh, some, some have suggested that Theophilus even might mean loved by God. Uh, all those things are true. In Luke's preamble to, this, to his gospel, though, Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, which is a, a, a designation usually reserved for officials of the Roman Empire. Um, I, I've noticed of late that, um, well, not just of late, but in general, that uh, we often refer to public officials with uh, the prefix honorable, whether they're honorable or not. Because of their office, they, they get that designation honorable. Um, but I really suggest that, that Theophilus was an actual individual, probably an official in the Roman Empire. So why would Luke, Luke have written these two volumes, Luke and Acts, to an official of the empire? Now, the fact is that we don't, we don't really know. We can only speculate. But here are a few possibilities. It's possible, I think, that Theophilus was a friend of Luke, uh, who was what we today might call a seeker or an inquirer or uh, even just a brand-new Christian. And it's possible that Luke had led Theophilus to a personal faith in Jesus Christ or was in the process of doing that, and his writings were an instrument in that effort. And if that is true, uh, my hat is off to Luke because what a monumental task he, he undertook uh, in order to uh, help his friend come to know Jesus better. And it's possible, secondly, that the Theophilus merely had an inquiring mind, that he had some money, that he hired Luke, commissioned him to write an accurate history of the person of Jesus of Nazareth and the movement that he had initiated. And there's the third possibility that that Luke might have written both volumes. And maybe, here's a thought I'll bet many of us have never thunk before. It's possible that Luke may have written both volumes for the purpose of demonstrating to Roman authorities that the empire had nothing to fear from the Christian movement. Um, in that light, it's possible that these two documents... Luke and Acts could have been submitted to the official records of the Roman Empire uh, and the Roman courts to inform them of 
the facts and to counter false testimony that may have been brought against Paul, for example, in advance of his trial before Caesar. Um, Interesting thought, isn't it? Whatever the case, uh, we can be happy for Theophilus that he received from Luke a full account of the incarnation of the life and the mission of Jesus, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and a detailed account of what comprises the first 30 to 40 years of the mission of the church, of the, 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 the Christian movement. Let's take a moment and example, <clears throat> examine the preamble to Luke's gospel and his first written words to Theophilus. This is the gospel now. This is, the, this is not Acts. This is the preamble to the gospel according to Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And one of the things I learned in my studies for this series is that oftentimes in those days, when someone wrote a volume with the anticipation that they would write a sequel to that volume and perhaps another sequel and another sequel, they'd be writing multiple volumes, that the preamble to the first usually encompassed the whole of what the writer intended to cover. So let's, let's just take a look at what Luke said, first of all, to Theophilus in the beginning of the gospel. He said, um, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Uh, I want you to focus on two words there, the word things and the word accomplished. Luke, Luke's talking about um, historical events of a specific kind. He doesn't say uh, simply a narrative of the things that have happened among us as if he saw them as random occurrences, you know, kind of haphazard things that just just happened to happen. Happenings that happened to happen. Instead, the word that, word that Luke uses here that's translated accomplished in the ESV means literally to fulfill. And not only to fulfill, but to fulfill in persuasive fashion. That is, Luke's narrative is concerned with events that really took place in fulfillment of something. In fulfillment of what? In this case, I think, in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Secondly, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke is, as it were, a reporter for the Eyewitness News, Cairo 7 Eyewitness News. Luke was not an apostle, uh, nor was he a part of the group who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus from the beginning. The eyewitnesses that he depended upon, from which he gathered his material, uh, would have included Jesus' mother Mary, uh, her other children who were Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, 
the apostles themselves, others who were witnesses to the historic Jesus and who then delivered to others what they themselves had seen and heard. And, and this is exactly, isn't it, reflective of what we read earlier this summer in the opening words of First John. You may remember John wrote that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon or beheld and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And that's, that, that's really what Luke is also saying here in this preamble to the Gospel of Luke. And he goes on, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Luke belonged to the second generation of believers in Jesus. He wasn't a first generation believer. But he had, he says, followed all things closely. That is, he had carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and now he's seeking to write an orderly account. As a faithful historian, a faithful and accurate narrator of the testimonies of those who were there on the scene during the days of Jesus' early life and his ministry. Why? For what purpose? That you may have certainty, he writes, concerning the things you have been taught. You may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Notice that Luke's goal in his careful historical investigation and then writing an orderly account was to provide certainty to this man Theophilus of the things he had been taught. In other words, Luke's aim was to write something on which Theophilus could rest his faith in Jesus. Something on something uh, which could provide him with assurance of his understanding of the gospel, assurance of his salvation when he trusted in the gospel. And I think about where do you go uh, when you need certainty, uh, when you have questions about your faith, when when doubts arise, when you're in need of assurance regarding the things that you've been taught. Do you go to God's Word, or do you go to friends or family or counselors or, or TV or Eastern religions, other sources? Here's what I'd like to say is that what Luke is doing and what Theophilus was going to experience and, and what people who have walked with the Lord for a while understand is that as we come back to the Word of God, even with the big questions— even with the serious doubts that arise in our lives, when we come back to the Word of God, we find assurance upon assurance upon assurance so that there's a a building effect uh, that just deepens our faith as we immerse ourselves in the unfailing truth of God's Word. Now, next, let's consider the title for a moment. Uh, Of course, we know it as the Acts of the Apostles, uh, that was the name that was given to it by uh, a man named Irenaeus, uh, one of the early church fathers, clear back in the second century. Uh, but is that the very best title? I think that's an interesting question. 
Is, is the Acts of the Apostles the very best title for this volume? Does it really reflect the content? Uh, in his commentary on Acts, John Stott asks the question whether to call it the Acts of the Apostles overemphasize the human element and, and fails to take into account the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because the, the pivotal event for the church following the ascension of Jesus into heaven which really is the, the beginning of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, was, was the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. So is it possible that a better title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church? And again, John Stott suggests that this second title overemphasizes the divine element because it might overlook the apostles and the others as the primary characters through whom the Spirit did his work. Well, I've thought about that a little bit this week, and, and, and I'd like to uh, suggest an even what I think is an even better alternate, alternative title. In verse 1, Luke implies that the, the words and actions that he's reporting are those of the ascended and glorified Christ working through the Holy Spirit. And some people think that you know, Jesus' ministry ended when he ascended. Uh, but that's not what Luke says. Luke says that it was just the beginning. So before he went to the cross, Jesus had promised the apostles that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And during that teaching, he said this to the apostles. I don't remember exactly where it is, either in John 14 or John 16. I know that. But Jesus said to the apostles, I, and this is in the context of him talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would, would come when he went away. But Jesus makes this very interesting statement in the midst of it all. He says, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in context. And he drops this little bomb right in the middle of it. I will come to you. And as you read through the Acts of the Apostles, so closely are God the Son and God the Holy Spirit identified with each other and twined together that in Acts 16, verse 7, Luke refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. So this may sound somewhat awkward, but uh, let me just share this title, and you can try it on for size. The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit Through the Church. What do you think? Think that'll get any cultural traction? I kind of doubt it. But I think it's a more accurate title, the, The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit Through the church. And with that in view, let's talk about the scope of the book of Acts. What does it include? By scope, I don't mean mouthwash. I mean what is included in this book. And there are several angles from which to view this book. One is to see it as a a book of sermons. Interesting way of thinking about it. But as you read the book of Acts, what you discover are ten major sermons. And so if you think of them as posts, ten posts all in a row, 
all of the action, all of the historical action happens, is kind of strung together and connected by <laughs> these posts, by these sermons. And, and what we find are uh, three major sermons by Peter, uh, one by Stephen, the, uh, the deacon, uh, right before he was stoned to death, first martyr of the church, and six more by the Apostle Paul, along with a, a whole bunch of other smaller sermons and testimonies from others. And these sermons are delivered to audiences of Jews. They're delivered to audiences of Gentiles. And they're delivered to audiences of Christians who are both Jews and Gentiles. There's another way of looking at Acts, which is to recognize that the, the two major characters and the major action pivots around two people other than Jesus, and they are Peter and Paul, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. In the first 12 chapters, the narrative centers on the ministry of Peter. And then from chapter 13 on to the end, all of the action pivots on and focuses on the ministry of Paul, who became the apostle to the Gentiles. But perhaps the best way to view the scope of this book, I think, is to view it against the backdrop of Jesus' words to the apostles in chapter 1, verse 8, which we'll see next week. But he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, why is it such a valuable way of viewing the book? One of the important things to understand as we look at Acts 1-8 is it's not, it's not stated as a command. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. <laughs> it, it's, it's a statement of what's about to happen. It's not a question. He's not saying, will you be my witnesses? He's not saying, this might happen. He's saying, this, this is going to happen. This is what is going to be true about your lives. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. And not surprisingly, the narrative of Act is then the demonstration of the progressive fulfillment of that statement. So beginning at Acts 1.8 and the promise of power and that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria at the end of the earth, we first see the action in Jerusalem in Acts 2.42 through chapter 6, verse 7. In chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 9, verse 31, the action moves, not surprisingly, to Judea and Samaria. In chapter 9, verse 30, through 12, 2, the action is in Syria, outside of the borders of Israel, now into Gentile territory, and then in chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 19, verse 20, all of the action is in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman provinces of Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, and then over into Europe. And then finally, 
in chapters 19, chapter 19, verse 21 through chapter 28, verse 31, all the action is in Rome. And Paul's ministry there, his awaiting trial before Caesar. And the book ends there, but it ends where? In the uttermost parts of the earth. And the interesting thing about the end of chapter 28 at verse 31, the very last book of Acts, or the last word in the book of Acts, in the Greek is the word unhindered. It's translated unhindered, meaning that Paul's ministry continued on unhindered. Well, we know at some point that, or we believe on the basis of tradition, that at some point Paul was executed. But notice where, where Luke leaves it. Did he want to be Debbie Downer and, and end it with an execution? I don't think so. I think what, what Luke wanted us to understand is that the ministry goes on. That the ministry of Jesus in the world is continuing today. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we're sitting here. And we have the opportunity to know Jesus, to hear the gospel, to trust in him. And we're, we're, the Holy Spirit is still writing new chapters. I don't know what the number of ours is. It must be a, you know, quite large. But the work of the gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing actions and teaching of Jesus uh, continues. And along the way, Luke's narrative, and part of the reason we love the book of Acts is that it includes reports of adventure after adventure. So uh, it's replete with arrests and imprisonments, of beatings, of riots, uh, narrow escapes, a resurrection, a shipwreck, uh, courtroom trials, miraculous rescues. It's an exciting book. And I, I am more than excited to journey through it with all of you in the weeks and months to come. Well, in the time we have left, I'd, let's just take a look at the, the first five verses of chapter one, and I'd like to share five observations. Five verses, five observations. And let me read it for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So five observations. And the first one is this, that Jesus chose them. That is the apostles. He chose the apostles. The first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He chose these men. Mark 4.13 says he appointed 12. It's in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You remember that there were crowds of people that were following Jesus. There were multitudes, it says. And it was out of those crowds, out of those multitudes that Jesus narrowed down those who would be his inner circle. Uh, and, and we can actually detect uh, 
a group of 70, a group of 12, even a group of three, Peter, James, and John, who were closest to Jesus. But Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Notice that, two, two, quali- two things. He appointed them apostles, and he appointed them to be with him. And it was after that, only after that, that he would send them out to preach. Even Paul, who was not one of the original 12, became an apostle only by the Lord's choosing. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we read that in a vision, Jesus said to a man named Ananias <coughs> regarding Paul, excuse me, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So even Paul was appointed. Even Paul was chosen as the other apostles were. And as we look at, the, at who these men were, we realize that most of them were not exceptional men. Maybe with, with the exception of Paul himself, who was a scholar, a Pharisee, probably, um, you know, had the opportunity to have been wealthy and influential. Um, but overall, these were simple men, and they were men through whom Jesus continued to do, and he continued to teach. He continued to act. He continued to express himself through them. They were so successful in their mission, as we mentioned earlier, in, in proclaiming the risen and glorified Christ, that in Acts seventeen six they're described as these men who turned the world upside down. Secondly, and this is especially important, Jesus presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, maybe it's never occurred to you, maybe, maybe in your mind the, the ascension of Jesus happened right after his resurrection, but, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days following his resurrection. 40 is a biblical number. Sometimes I think we're to understand it as, uh, as uh, imprecise, and sometimes it's presented as a precise number. Uh, it's a biblical number, 40. But there was a, a period of time, uh, an interim period between the resurrection and, and the ascension. And we know that, that Jesus' first appearance following his resurrection was to Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, uh, and the other women near the tomb. And they reported the news to the apostles, uh, most of whom didn't believe them. But Peter and John got up and had a foot race to the tomb, uh, found it empty, found the grave clothes neatly folded where Jesus' body had uh, been laid. Uh, and then he appeared in a different form to two disciples, remember that, who were were walking on the road to the village of Emmaus, and they were dejected because they thought Jesus was dead. They hadn't heard the news of his resurrection. They were probably uh, a couple of disciples who just left the city um, just to clear the air, get it out of their minds and move on. But they were, they were dejected, we read. And, and Jesus appeared to those men, and uh, they didn't recognize him at first. He disguised himself. But he opened the scriptures to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What, what a day that would have been. What a walk with Jesus that would have been. Uh, 
right? To have Jesus himself just kind of unfold the full history of the Bible and, and explain how, it, how all of it was about him. That would have been amazing. And then he allowed them to recognize him, but then he vanished from their sight. At the moment that they recognized him and saw, understood who he was and who, had they, who they spent the day with, he vanished from their sight. Which tells us a few things about, and we see a few things about the nature of Jesus' resurrection body. Because he could disguise himself. He could appear in a different form. He didn't appear like an animal or, a, you know, not like that. But, but he could disguise himself. Mary, you remember, in the garden didn't recognize Jesus right at first. We're not sure what was going on there. But these guys on the road to to Emmaus didn't recognize him either, and they apparently were men who had walked with him. And next he appeared in the room where the eleven were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, as if the as if the, the barred doors didn't mean anything. He he just kind of walked through them or or just transported himself into the room and said, Hey guys, shalom. And they're freaking out. He ate with them. He allowed them to touch him, to see the nail marks in his hands and feet, the spear wound in his side. And on another occasion, he met Peter and, and six other disciples on the beach. And they, they'd gone fishing. Peter, who was the leader, said, and who was a fisherman, in the aftermath of it all, said, I'm going fishing. And six other guys said, we'll go with you. And so they're out on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they come in from a morning of fishing. And Jesus, who's there but Jesus? The resurrected Jesus, he's on the beach, he's got a fire going, he's prepared fish, he's prepared bread, and he said breakfast is served. Amazing. And Paul recounts that on one occasion Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. We have to take his word for that because we don't have any other record of it. But the fact is that Jesus wanted to leave no doubt. That's the point. He wanted every one of them to be fully persuaded that he had died but was now alive again. Listen to what Peter said in the house of Cornelius. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And notice the way that Peter directly links the historical time and space reality of the resurrection to the command to preach the gospel to the people about who Jesus really is, to announce forgiveness of sins through his name. They never would have had the confidence to do all that would be required of them if they weren't entirely persuaded of his resurrection from the dead. I mean, they were already in that period of time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, they were already chickening out, right? I mean, they they were already denying, betraying, avoiding, running. 
And Jesus was calling them to a lifetime of proclaiming the gospel. They never would have done it if they hadn't been absolutely persuaded that he was alive again. And next, Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Verse 3 of Acts 1, he presented himself to, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the content of his teaching, when they were together during those last 40 days before he ascended into heaven, was the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the Bible represents the kingdom of God as his sovereign rule over all of creation, visible and invisible, spiritual and material, his sovereign rule in human lives, his sovereign rule in history, his sovereign rule in all the spheres in which he reigns. His rule is universal. It's cosmic in its scope. There is nothing outside of his rule. And if we take a clue about what's meant in this context from the things that we know that Jesus said and did in those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, there appear to be three emphases. One, he wanted them to know who he really is, that he is Messiah and Lord. Secondly, he wanted them to connect the dots. He wanted them to understand his resurrection from the dead as the direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding him. Fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Jesus is the hope of Israel, even yet today. And he wanted them to know that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him and that they should obey his command to proclaim his resurrection and to make disciples of all the nations. And then Jesus commissioned them. He commissioned them. And we see that in that statement in verses 4 and 5. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And we're going to talk more about this next week, and, but, but what a great way to describe the gift of the Holy Spirit. He calls it the promise of the Father. The baptism with the Spirit is, is the essential equipment for Christian mission. And apart from that Spirit, apart from the Spirit of God, you and I can do nothing that touches spiritual needs. See, I understand every Sunday when I, when I stand up here before you, and I have spent time in the Word, and I've written, I've put ink on pages. And I've, I've, I've laid it out as clearly as I know how to, to lay out. But I can only engage your mind. I can't touch your spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if he doesn't show up and do those things, then we're all lost. <laughs> We, we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a parallel passage in Luke 24 that's the perfect overlay for this morning. It's the very end of Luke's gospel, and it's kind of a that overlap between Luke and Acts. But he says, then he, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
This is Jesus speaking, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Finally, Jesus ordered them to wait for the promise of the Father. He ordered them to wait for the promise of the Father. I don't know about you, waiting is not my strong suit. Anybody here that can resonate with that? Um, I don't like lines. We were at a Mariners game with our son and daughter-in-law recently, and uh, somewhere in the middle of the game, my son said, Dad, let's, get, let's go get some food. And we went up onto the concourse, and uh, every line you could just look at it and say, 45 minutes, 45 minutes. And if we stand in one of these lines, we're going we're gonna to get our tummies filled, but we're going to miss the game. And I just said, no, I'm going back to my seat. Um, and, and as speedy as things like... Uh, UPS and FedEx are, I, I still don't like to wait for deliveries, you know. I want it tomorrow, overnight shipping. That's my, that's my thing. And, and as fast as computers are compared to what they used to be, they're still not quite fast enough, are they? I mean, it's like, hurry up, hurry up. And waiting clearly wasn't Peter's strong suit either. We we could speculate about the other apostles and those who were close to them. Why to to wait is to experience a kind of helplessness, right? To wait is to experience a kind of weakness. But to wait is also to be hopeful. To wait is to build character, to build perseverance, and then to receive what you hope for is to experience joy. The fulfillment of that for which you hoped brings joy. These guys were to wait for the promise of the Father, which was in turn the promise of the Son, which is the promised Holy Spirit, who would baptize them, who would clothe them with power, equip them for the mission of making Christ known to the nations. And that same baptism and that same power, that same commission is ours today. It hasn't changed. This book of the Acts of the Apostles the acts of the Holy Spirit through the church, this book of the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through the church, love that title, is a book for today as well. The same baptism that they experienced on the day of Pentecost, you and I experienced on the day that we trust in Christ. And he baptizes us and includes us in his family. So here at the close of these, just the first five verses, there are two major realizations. The first is that um, the necessary twofold equipment for witness in the world is an absolute certainty of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And secondly, possession of the promise of the Father, which is the baptism, the fullness, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, as we think about uh, our own kind of rate of activity, uh, our rate of effort, level of effort, uh, our, our success rate in personal evangelism and sharing the gospel with 
our families and our friends, um, whether that is directly linked to whether we are actually fully persuaded of the resurrection or if it just still remains out there as a as a a favored notion has it become a persuasion for you and then secondly it's linked to our fullness level of fullness of the Holy Spirit and the freedom that we allow to him to work through us and that's where we're going to pick up next week so let's pray together Lord thank you for your word thank you for the ways it speaks down through the centuries by your spirit into our lives Lord I pray that you would help us as we study this book of Acts together not only to hear it and then to enjoy it in a sense as a historical book, but that you would bring it to life to us and bring it to life within us that uh, we might be a part of the continued unfolding of the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our generation and to generations to come. And we pray it In Jesus' name, for his sake, for his kingdom, amen.